Brits and Cures with Lindy Burns, lawyer Bill O'Shea and psychiatrist Dr Steve Allen. And one of the things we're talking about this week on Ritz and Cures is relationships. But relationships in a particular place, in the workspace, they're an increasing source of confusion and controversy, negotiating negotiating what is normal, abusive, disruptive or just plain annoying is quite difficult. Where do the lines get drawn? So to help us tease out those issues, we're going to look tonight at some of the psychology of relationships, the laws that might apply company policies that might apply and seeing if we can figure out a roadmap for how to handle love in the workplace. Steve Ellen, nice to see you back. Nice to have you here. Hello, Lindy. Thank you. And Bill O'Shea, nice to have you. Uh, nice to be here, Lindy. And ni- nice that you're wading into one of the controversial issues of our time. Well, let me say, as a uh, former managing partner, if I'd observed the same rules as the AFL, I would have lost uh, a number of my heavy fee-earning partners very quickly would have decimated the firm. So there's no way I could do an AFL in my workplace. But that was quite a few years ago. We should quickly point that out. But even nowadays, you know, if, if you got the legal profession and, st- and started wielding the AFL axe, um, there'd be a few firms that'd be in dire straits. You know, I mean, doctors and nurses, come on. Well, you know, funny you should say that because we discuss this a lot on text amongst various doctors and, uh, you know, nurses and clinicians that I'm friends with. And the common statement was this, that. If oh my goodness, if the hospitals all of a sudden brought in this policy widespread, um, then uh, yeah, a lot of our public hosp- a lot of our public and private hospitals would be in a little bit of trouble. How many doctors um, are married to other doctors? Who well, they met in the I, I certainly was. Well, I'm, not just I married, actually, but in a relationship. Yeah, most of my mates, male and female, met their partners between the age of about twenty and thirty, and most of us met them at. And most married of all of my mates, I'd say two thirds married. Um, either other doctors, other nurses, physios, OTs, etc., etc. We all married each other, so, and about a third married other professionals. So about a third are married to lawyers and uh, and accountants. Well, that's good for the like that. that's good that for the gene pool. So boring. Well, you know, it's quite interesting because it's that whole issue, issue of where do you meet your partner, and uh, and most of us, about a third of us, meet our partner through friends, and of course, we'd all gone through uni together and we worked together, and also we worked really long hours. Remember, in those early years, so socialising is difficult. Yeah, well, we'd all socialise with each other. And then um, the other places we meet people are social settings. Now, we would all go to hospital and um, functions. <laughs> yes. That's what we'd well, go with to. The, with the patients. No, 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 not the patients. That was always, that, Even back then... Even back then, whilst it wasn't as taboo as it was now, it was considered taboo. So we still knew that was taboo. But 20%, one in five people roughly, depending on the survey, meet their partner at work. So so workplace is incredibly commonplace. You know, proximity is the biggest... predictor of relationships. I think that the, you, the point you raised too about working unusual hours and and people I think you know a lot of people who work in the hospitality industry are, are in relationships with each other because it's pretty damn hard mm. to even maintain a relationship with somebody yep. who is not in the hospitality industry and doesn't work weekends so they're working all week then you work all weekend and yep. you can't even see each other so I do understand mm. why that is uh, an, an issue in these kinds of things. Is it also one of the major causes of adultery and that's, I know that's a very old-fashioned word, but a lot of people spend more time in the workplace with people who they find attractive than they do with their partner at home because they work such long hours. Well, they never see the partner. Yeah. 
Well, we're, and we're flicking over a little bit here too because, of course, I'm talking about just relationships. So yeah. most of these relationships I'm talking about, the 20% etc., are people singles. who are s- singles, similar age, etc., mm. etc. Likes attract like. To the old idea that opposites attract is nonsense, we actually go for people who are like us. And that includes who like the same things, like the same career, like the same work, hospitality, medicine, law, radio, whatever, whatever. Um, and, of course, the ones where it gets sort of messy are the ones where for some reason it's it, it, you know it's considered to be outside the realm of norm so you know if the AFL had been two people who were roughly the same age who as it was worked in different departments and had a relationship um, and there was no, no none of them were married no one would have batted an island well of, of course. course not yeah so the issues it's when it um, is all of a sudden considered Morally um, difficult. Well, the difficult ones are when it either breaks the law, breaks policy, or breaks moral codes. Mm. And that one appeared, although we don't want to get caught up in the nuts and bolts of particular issues tonight, but that one appeared to break, to break what was considered to be a moral code. It was but, adultery. But, but there's also there's, there's, a, there's a different... Okay, there's, a, there's an element in, in the two set of circumstances that have prompted this conversation tonight, and they've been talked about ad nauseum in the media, so we won't go into mm. those details, but we're talking about Channel 7 and we're talking about the AFL. So there's there's a different scenario in here too, or, or an additional scenario which which needs to be discussed, which is isn't just about one or both of the people who are, in, are involved are in other relationships. And in one in particular cases, there's families involved, but there's also the element of of a person being in a superior position within the firm itself, yeah. or you know, the, uh, an immediate superior, or even a couple of levels above, and and having that person's career and livelihood within their control. And, and th- that, I mean, and whilst that's not that's not a moral issue, but there's there's something within that that feels incredibly uncomfortable. Because well, it can cause. Attention in the workplace when there's promotion as well. And we had an example of that in Victoria in one of the major legal offices in Victoria where there are allegations of unfair promotion. So there must be a rule then, Steve. If we're looking at a set of rules here, I think we should put aside sexual harassment because that's unlawful. And we're not really talking about sexual harassment. If you engage in sexual harassment, you could end up in the courts. You could be be, uh, convicted of an offence and you'll probably get sacked and fair enough too. So yeah. that's a different issue. And I agree. I agree. Rule out sexual harassment, bullying, yeah, stalking, that. any stuff that's defined by law because that's a given. Everyone of on course. every side agrees yes. that's not on. So we're talking so, about the ones that Consensual relationships in, in the workplace is what we're talking about. Yeah. Now, you'd have... Between a, adults. Yeah, between adults. That's right. And even uh, where there's an age difference and where there's a power difference, but they're adults which is the big difference with school teachers and students. There's a power balance, but it's unlawful because of uh, obviously the age difference. So we're well, talking about adults, consenting adults in the workplace. Now, if you lay down some rules, one of them would be, would they, that you don't, you try and avoid a relationship with someone who reports to you. That'd be the first rule you'd say? Yeah, I, I think that's uh, you know a completely obvious one, that um, the moment you've got a relationship with someone that reports to you or who you report to, let's not yep. go one way or the other, then um, it's going to create an impression of problems. And if you are going to have a relationship in that circumstance, you need to have some careful safeguards in place. Like, for example, you go and talk to um, the person who's seen you to both of you and say, listen, we've fallen in love. 
and uh, how are we going to handle this? So we're going to move different places. Are we going to make sure that I don't do any of the um, of the performance reviews, or um, I don't I'm not involved in any wage um, deals or contract negotiations, or are we going to separate it out in some way? And you ask the company, um, you know. Give us guidance so that this is handled in an okay way. So you should be upfront about it. You shouldn't keep it covert. You well, the problem is hidden. if you create the perception of favouritism, that's going to disrupt the workplace. It's going to muck up the work environment for others. And so you have to mitigate against that um, perception of favouritism. And so you have to go and speak to someone and, and, uh, and be proactive, I think. But how enforceable is that? I can understand a company wanting to put these kinds of rules and regulations in. But how enforceable is it to the point? I mean, do people, would everybody have to come and then sign something that says well, we understand this? Then if we step outside those boundaries that we can get the sack? Well, if it's a company policy, um, usually a contract of employment says that when you sign up to, to be engaged by an employer, you accept that the um, policies of the company are incorporated into your contract of employment. So policies on bullying and harassment, um, policies on smoking in the workplace, uh, you know, all those but sorts of policies, places, including you could have a policy on relationships in the workplace. Do you it, know of any companies that have um, – I mean, they must exist, but are there many that have them? I haven't struck any that have them. I've All I've seen are problems like this occurring where they all say, oh, we must get a policy on this to say this never happens again. But there would be sort of roundabout policies, wouldn't there? The whole idea of, you know, sort of not bringing the company into disrepute yeah, or those something ones along would. those And lines. I can think of an example there, um, Lindy, because I think that's an interesting one. Take, for example, the adultery case. Now, many people would argue that adultery has got nothing to do with the company. Now, what if the company is a company that um, trades on its reputation? Say, and I'm just making this up, but say I'm a company that um, makes, what do they call, pulpits for churches. And my only customers are churches. And they, and you know, it would look bad if I was a company that did things that were against the church. For example, I'm just trying to make an example up on the run. Then I would say it's quite reasonable for a company to say we've got a, we have to have a strong moral reputation that's in keeping with our customers. We can't offend our customers, so we don't want any. We want to have a policy. I think that's reasonable. But then in other circumstances, if you're a news agency that's you know got um, five employees and um, and you're delivering papers and selling this, that, and the other thing, who really cares? So I think I, I think yeah. that can. I think you could have a policy that spelt out these things, but only if it's relevant to your business would you bother. There's still, there's still grey areas there. Yeah. But, Significant grey areas. Here's another one. Oh, Some sorry. companies have policies on drugs, drug taking, that they can, in fact, drug test their employees. Yep, yep fair enough. Because one Any problem, company where you need to be alert and oriented. Well, I think there's safety influence. issues yeah. associated well, with that. Yeah, but what even, about this even one desk then? staff. There's a prominent mining company that would go around the offices you know, people sitting at desks who never went near a mine yeah. who, were, who were drug tested and you would be dismissed if you were, had a positive for read, reading yeah. in the workplace. I think anyone could justify that, though. Let's take some calls. My name is Lindy Burns. His name is Steve Allen and his is Bill O'Shea. Steve is a psychiatrist. Bill is a lawyer. And Stephen is with us from Morwell. Hi, Stephen. Hello, how are you, Lindy? We're very well, thank you. What would you like to tell us about this? Oh, looking about 2000, I was married to my first wife. I was a nurse. And I was working in a nursing home, and another nurse and I attracted each other, and um, it broke my marriage up. It stuffed hers up, and it uh, really, yeah, it wasn't a good thing. I bet. I what, bet. What, what were the repercussions for both of you in your workplace? Uh, I just couldn't work there. It was just too tense and everything. As I yeah, there are people there kept referring to, oh, you, you want to go out for lunch with your husband, with your husband? 
And, you know, I just thought I would not. This nah. was about the person that you were spending time with at work. Yeah. 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 So, so people in your workplace knew about this? Yes, it's a bit hard to keep things quiet. Well, you know. absolutely, and I think that I mentioned this at the start of the program tonight. Not not in this hour, but just after seven o'clock. That one of the issues that I've had over the years, I've actually not had a relationship with anyone at work for some reason. It's just kind of not in my makeup. I just don't go there, as it were. And and I was a div one nurse, and this girl was a div two nurse, so she had to report to me. Right. And, uh, yes, we, so we, we we did the naughty in various places. Yeah. Uh, well, we probably don't need too many no, more details, too, Stephen. Too, 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 I don't tell. No, I'm joking. <laughs> so, Stephen, what what is the situation now? You you're together? Uh, no, no, I uh, I broke that up. As it just it was re- I can't go into it. I haven't got time. But I since uh, found another lady. I've been married eleven years on the odds at March next year. Would you Would you do something like that again? Oh, I'm not. Hell no, yeah, no, it's an interesting thing, isn't it? It's a massive lesson learned. But it's easy to say hell no, but what if you fell in love? What if you went to work one day and you met someone at work and it was the classic, you mentioned Nights of March, Shakespearean love at first sight? No, I value, I value my fishing tackle too much. <laughs> You know what this also reminds me of, though? Thanks, Stephen, for your call. This also reminds me of that whole issue, not about the um, reporting relationship and the perception, but the issue of um, does it impact on your ability to do your job? So say I go along to work and I have a relationship that uh, uh, a large number of people think is immoral, like, you know, um, something where people get mad, say it's adulterous or there's an age difference or there's some sort of um, something like that. But... um, and then the people who I work with no longer respect me and no longer um, work with me in a collegiate manner. Now, I could argue that's their fault because they've got, they're being moralistic. But the workplace could argue that, well, regardless of whose fault it is, you're the one who had the relationship and you're the one who's got an impacted ability to work. And do you know what? It's not even just about being moralistic towards it. And because I was going to, this is a story I was going to finish when I was chatting with Stephen. I was saying that I don't have, don't sort of go there, don't have relationships with people at work. Um, but, but I've been asked on a number of occasions to keep quiet about relationships that I know are going on. Right. And that, I've, I found that very stressful mm. I've, because I, I, on a couple of occasions I've been friends with the partner of mm. the person who's asked me to keep it quiet about the affair that they're having as well. And that, you know, in a work environment, that's hard enough for your friends in a social setting, mm. but within a work environment in terms of respect and feeling comfortable in day-to-day dealings with them, it, there is no doubt that it impacts and, and I, so I think that they're just, you know, you, you can get all moralistic, but but the problem is they're asking you to lie for them. But it comes back to Bill's initial point. You know, our re- the most decent research says that the rate of people who have affairs, it's pretty shocking. It's somewhere between 20 and 50%, depending on which it, group you research and who does it. In the workplace. No, in general, in general. In general. So it comes back to Bill's point at the start. If we start um, you know, sacking everyone who's... who's um, Who's having a relationship um, outside, you know, outside a, a marriage in the workplace? We're, we're going to quickly um, run out of people. Uh, run to but run you wonder what the if there were probably, there may be people who are having affairs right in this building right now. I have no idea, and if I don't know about it, I don't. And it's not impacting the workplace. It's not impacting their work. I, mm. I, I don't have an issue. I'm not moralistic about that. I know it goes on. Some people are in very unhappy relationships, et cetera, et cetera, whatever it is. Yeah. But it's when it spills out and it so easily spills out 
that it's very hard to keep a lock yeah. on that. Well, I, th- I think it affects productivity. I mean, I'm speaking as a former managing partner, but if you're spending half your day texting, you know, your your paramour, what, why aren't you doing your work? Are you distracted from your work? Are you it's not thinking clearly? But again, I'm going to argue that that's life. Life is distracting. And texting and paramour. life is messy texting. I want to text a paramour. <laughs> I, want a, I want a paramour. <laughs> I want to get a dictionary and find out what a paramour is. Um, but, uh, I'm sorry that you, you didn't do enough English. None of you doctors have got proper English training in your background. It is a great word. Um, but, can, um, I, can I also say, though, that um, the, whole, the whole problem with this is a distraction. It is like you... you all the cases that you read about, there are masses and masses of texts going on. Now, where's the work? What's happening with the work? Oh, look, <sighs> life. This is what I'm he saying. doesn't like life texting is anyway. You know what I think part of the problem is? Um, the, you know, it's that old, the, most people get their knowledge f- about this area from the media cases, which are all incredibly salacious, high profile, messy. Mm. Um, the 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 mundane reality is that probably that 99% of workplace relationships you never hear about, nothing ever happens, no one knows, etc., etc. Um, you know, we're trying to make law based on um, unusual, outrageous cases. Do you think a company should have a policy on this? Look, I think there should be some basic general rules. And yes, it would be nice if it was within policy. If you're going to have a relationship that affects anything to do with the company's business, then you need to discuss it with um, someone senior in a confidential manner who's trained in dealing with it in an appropriate, sensitive way and who knows how to um, give you the appropriate advice and not get carried away and overreact and sack everyone in the um, place and make it public, et cetera, et cetera. It could be written sensitively. Yeah, you could, you know, you could, easily, you could easily deal with this better than it is being dealt with currently. I want to wrap this up with uh, a couple of quick texts and a, and a call and we've got a number of calls along this line so we won't actually go to an individual call but with reference in particular to one of the cases that has prompted this discussion that it it appears that in in that in that case it 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 was the men who ended up having to leave the organization what who's to say that that is fair and a couple of people saying, do the women need to take responsibility in that situation? Let's not talk about that individually. But in a, in a broader context, you know, the, it takes two to tango, et cetera, et cetera. What, what is, you know, how much do, do, does one sex over another bear the brunt of some of the repercussions well, of this? In my, in my experience, it's not one sex over the other. It's the one with the least power who ends up leaving. And in my experience, if it's the woman who's got less power – it's usually the woman who leaves. The person who's got the power is probably highly valued by the organisation. They don't want to lose the person, be they male or female, and so the person with the least power. So if you are in that position of having less power than your partner, just think about what happens if this goes wrong because you most likely will be the one who has to leave. And in this particular case that we're referring to, obviously, the stated reason from the CEO was that the people who were leaving were leaving because they're in a position where they're expected to um, provide a higher level of um, guidance within the organisation, and they failed to do that, whereas the people in the lower level weren't, didn't have that same responsibility within the organisation. And some text to wrap this one that says, I work in an industry where we regularly work 14 hours per day. My boss is my ex-partner, and the other two people in our team are a divorced ex-couple both now in new relationships. We didn't meet at work, but we worked brilliantly together. Mm. That sounds complicated, but it's good to hear See, it I works. love it. That's what I mean. Here, here, you know, 90% of these 
problems you don't actually hear about because people just get on with it. Uh, the affair that destroyed my relationship wasn't as bad as finding out who knew and looked me in the eye as they lied to my face. Yep. What's your point, Mindy? Totally my point, mm. and it's awful to be that person who's done that lying. I'll never do that again. And another, if you need to ask others to keep a secret, especially from someone trusted by the recipient of the secret, you are a CAD or whatever the feminine of CAD is. Mm. I just like the fact this whole conversation has brought out words like CAD and paramour. I think, I think a sign should be there. I think a sign in the foyer saying, Notice to all employees, no fishing off the company pier. Yeah. <laughs> That's all you need. Yeah. In fact, That's someone texted me that earlier. You know, the way you say that, Bill, I'm quite attracted to you, but I'm trying to... I'm trying <laughs> Hold to, it back. Yeah, I'm holding back. I've always had my, you know, questions about the pair of you. And our special guest on Ritz and Cures tonight is the Executive Director of the Human Rights Law Centre in Hugh de Kretzer. And for the past 13 years, he's worked to protect and promote human rights in Australia through his position there and also previous roles that he had as Executive Officer of the Victoria Federation of Community Legal Centres and manager of the Brimbank Melton Community Legal Centre up till 2007. He currently serves as a director of the Victorian Sentencing Advisory Council and a member of the advisory board of the University of Melbourne Law School. And it's a big welcome back to you. Thanks for having me on. To Ritz and Cures. And particularly as you have been kind enough to look up the word paramour whilst (laughs) we have been waiting. There's a great text that says, Lindy, please, before you all go on with the show, can you get someone to define what a paramour is so that we all know out here in Radio Land. It was a big word. I, I'm sorry, I'm literate. I'm, I, you know, I, I'll just start to deal with one, monosyllabic words from now on. I do apologise to the listening audience. It's, it's not so much it's, you know, the fact it's got more than one syllable. It just hasn't been used since 1947 <laughs> in public life. But, but now you have chosen yeah. to do that. So uh, does, who wants to have a go? Anyone? I, lo- I looked it up. I was out there. I thought <laughs> I, I better check this out before I go and, and talk uh, on air. The, uh, the the lover, especially the illicit lover of a married person. So there, there you go. go. So it's perfect. Thank you very much, Lindy. Yeah, perfect to have have that. In <laughs> I that might run some tutorials for ABC presenters and guests on more uncommon words in the English language that they could pick up. Yeah. And the segment will be called uh, "Popular Words from the 1950s." <laughs> And why they've been long gone. <laughs> Hugh, let's talk much more serious matters. And I, I want to talk about the, uh, the detention centre on Manus Island in, in Papua New Guinea. I think it was last week, the fourth anniversary yep. of the announcement by the then Prime Minister, Kevin Rudd. And I'm just thinking how quickly we forget was that only four years ago um, of the deal to establish that centre on, on Papua New Guinea. He declared that no one arriving by boat would be resettled in Australia. But at the time... He said, I think he said that the arrangement would be reviewed annually. And the, and the PNG Supreme Court has declared that the detention, detention centre is illegal. It's ordered its closure. The current Australian immigration minister says it wants it closed by October. So what are the chances? Is there an end yeah. in sight? So, uh, well, we hope the end is in sight and, um, uh, more importantly, 850 men who spent the last four years there um, in, in absolute limbo in terrible conditions. Obviously, we've had the murder of Reza Barati by workers in the centre more recently, up to 100 shots fired into the centre, um, guys who are uh, who's, you know, mentally being destroyed by the um, indefinite nature of um, their effective detention on an island in the in 
you know 800 kilometers north of Port Moresby. And so what happened in 2013 was um, Kevin Rudd, the Manor Centre had been used before by under the Howard government, for example. Um, the Gillard government reopened it. Um, and what happened in July 2013 was um, Kevin Rudd announced a, a deal with the PNG government under which um, no person would ever be resettled in Australia and that PNG would resettle people. And, of course, it was completely... Um, uh, unsustainable to expect that a country like PNG would be able to uh, settle people safely and provide a future for them. And, and four years on, here we are with 850 men still there. Why men? <coughs> why men here? No women? Yeah. Yeah. So um, the, the the way that the government set up these arrangements was to do deals with uh, two governments, uh, both former colonies, um, Nauru and Papua New Guinea. So um, men, women and children are on Nauru, about 1,200 people. Um, and about 850 single men on Manus Island. So we still have 169 kids uh, on Nauru. Um, you know, again, years after, you know, the government's been talking about freeing uh, all children from immigration detention. For uh, those who don't know, Nauru is an island in the middle of the Pacific Ocean. Uh, it's, uh, I, I've uh, tried over the years to come up with a good comparison to show people how small it is. It's the size of Melbourne Airport. So when you think about Melbourne Airport, that is the size of the entire island of Nauru. So it is a tiny speck in the ocean population, 10,000 people of which uh, we now have around 1,000 refugees, 169 kids. Um, so uh, the detention centre uh, was opened, if you like, um, a couple of years ago in response to a case that we ran, um, but the, um, they, they effectively have no future on, a, on an island that is a tiny speck in the ocean. And um, so what we're saying, four years on, enough is enough. It's, we must bring them here. These people are our responsibility and we need to bring them to safety. But, so but mostly people from where? Uh, so uh, they, they basically mirror the kinds of people, the conflict zones where people are free, fleeing persecution. So um, uh, people from Afghanistan, people from Iraq, people from Pakistan. So there's a um, mixture. Uh, Rohingya, you know, one of the most persecuted minorities in the world, people coming from uh, Myanmar, from Burma, um, Sri Lanka, Sudan. Um, so um, and, and, and what we know when we look at the, the um, people who have arrived by boat in Australia over the last 10 or so years, for example, when we look at the statistics, they show that about 90% of people arriving by boat are found by our um, refugee determination system to be um, absolute genuine refugees, people who are fleeing for their safety, fleeing from persecution, people who we owe a responsibility to, to provide safety and to provide a future. So wh how, what state are they in now? I don't mean physically or, or mentally, but, but I mean in terms of Processing has that yeah. process stopped? Uh, is it still ongoing? Where are they at? Yes, yeah, so um, the the large majority have been found to be refugees. So um, the Australian government has set up this charade of um, uh, so the Australian government is funding and controlling these centres. Uh, the Australian government is contracting with the the, the companies that have been running these centres. Um, so Australia's fingerprints are all over the operation of these. Um, these facilities, and yet the Australian government maintains this veneer of sovereignty and saying this is this is a, a sovereign operation by the Nauruan government or the PNG government, which is um, completely false. And so, um, but those refugee determination processes have been run by um, Nauru and by PNG, funded by Australia and controlled by Australia, and they have determined that uh, the large majority of those people, unsurprisingly, given the history of people arriving by boat, are genuine. Refugees, but there's nowhere for them to go. But, 
Yeah, there's nowhere okay. for them and to be cost? resettled. What's it cost in five years? Uh, you know, the latest figures are around $5 billion. So uh, 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 A billion uh, dollars a year? Uh, yeah, roughly. So For how many people? Uh, so yeah, about 2,000 people across the, the, the two islands. Mm. Um, you, can, you can look at the money... Uh, more importantly, you can look at the morality morality of this and say, what, what is the right thing to do? Um, and and for us, it's clear when you look at the harm that has been endured on those islands, when you talk mm. to the people who have suffered so much, uh, absolutely the right thing to do is to um, uh, for Australia to accept its responsibility and bring them here. So we, we've had this US deal that's been announced between Malcolm Turnbull and, and the former Obama administration. Uh, Donald Trump's you know, described it as a dumb deal, and and you know, uh, uh, but but said ultimately that he'll continue it and scrutinise it. Um, but uh, eight months on, not one person has been resettled under that deal. Are the boats um, still arriving? Uh, I think the latest figures. No, yeah, we no, we're not told, are we? I think the immigration minister came out uh, this week and said we've turned back thirty-one boats, and so this is this is one of the great concerns. Um, uh, around the secrecy around these operations. So uh, he says 31 boats have been turned back. Uh, you know, figures I looked at last year, about 600 people uh, are turned back at sea. Australia maintains that there's this process to um, determine whether or not those people, whether we, we owe un- obligations under international law to provide safety to them, um, uh, yet that process, very clear, is designed to, preter- to produce a particular outcome, which is that people are turned back and returned to the country. But do you know what outcome came. it's producing? Is, it, is, it, is the secrecy aspect of it ha- have, have taken the matter off the public discourse? Uh, that there is one of the reasons we're having this conversation mm. tonight is that it, it's not any longer being discussed. It's it's not a yep. major issue. People aren't talking about it. Steve. You know, this is you know I'm sitting here as a shrink trying to figure out how do we get to this situation because you know from every description I've heard you talk about this over the years, Hugh and others. You know, it sounds not that dissimilar to, I don't want to, you know, use difficult words, but it doesn't sound that dissimilar to a concentration camp situation. So we've, now, we've got a society of whatever number of million of people we are, um, and we're keeping 2,000-odd people for at least the last four years in circumstances that pretty much everyone I've ever heard at who's looked at it says is horrible. So I'm thinking, you know, in, and is unfair and illegal, and except, or whatever, maybe not illegal, but um, although, as it turns out, now it is. Um, so I'm sitting here trying to make a list of reasons why this could be the case in my head, and I'd like to get your thoughts on it. You know, one is that the public don't believe it. They just don't believe that it's as bad as everyone says. The second is that the public don't care, that they think these are people from another country, they don't have the rights, they try to come here illegal, I don't care how bad it is they deserve it, it's jail-like, yep, but they broke the law. Another one is that the public just don't know, and I get a sense that this has fallen off the public radar. And the third the final one is that the is that some people must believe it's the right thing to do, that we need to protect ourselves for whatever reason. That whole argument that it's dangerous. To, what's your how how have we supposedly a country that's affluent, educated, considers itself to have a good human rights track record? How have we found ourselves in this what sounds like an abysmal situation? Yeah, so I think it's a combination of of those things, and and different people will have their different reasons in response to this. What what we saw though last year is that when we pierce this secrecy, 
when we show the Australian people the the faces and tell them the stories of the actual people who Australia has held on these islands in miserable conditions for four years, that the Australian public respond to that. And so we worked extremely hard to tell the stories of the babies born here. So these were pregnant women from um, Nauru who were brought to Australia, delivered babies in Australian hospitals under Australian law. These babies who had never seen a boat were classified as unauthorised maritime arrivals and subject to be sent back mandatorily back to Nauru. We put the photos of those babies on the front pages of um, newspapers across Australia. We told the stories of, of their families and the Australian public said, let them stay. And people spoke out across the country. We had an enormous response from premiers, from medical profession, from unions, uh, from teachers. And it showed um, that that dehumanising aspect, the secrecy, putting people behind fences, sending them thousands of kilometres offshore, uh, trying to evade the rule of law, trying to get journalists nowhere near those um, uh, th those facilities, um, that that works. And so what we've done with this report last week is tell the stories of seven men. And we've taken photos of those seven men uh, and, and they're proud photos. They're, they show the people that Australia is missing out on, the people who uh, carry great hopes for a great future to contribute to the Australian um, uh, community and yet who are um, uh, rotting away in these terrible conditions in Manus Island. We've quite deliberately told these personal stories because we want the Australian public to know what is happening to these men? And so there's things like we, we tell details about their lives. One was a bike mechanic, some were semi-professionals, like particular music. And then we talk about some of the things that they've seen. They've, they've seen uh, their friend Reza Barati murdered before them. They've had their um, father, um, who's in another country in Burma, um, assaulted and, and killed. And they've had to endure that grief uh, separated um, while um, they're, um, uh, you know, they're, they're on an island with rationed access to the internet or to the phone to talk to their mother to actually talk to her about the grief of that loss. And do, so, do they regret making that journey? Uh, well, everyone responds in different ways. So um, that the Australian government is putting intense pressure on them to return, which is obviously an absurd situation where they are Refugees, they've been found to re be refugees, which means they're fleeing persecution. And yet the Australian government is uh, trying to make the conditions so horrible that they feel compelled to return. The Australian government's offering, offering financial settle, uh, incentives for them to return and saying, you'll never come to Australia. And then finally, we get this, this hope of the US deal eight months ago. And that for some of them provides a great hope that finally I can get on with my life. Um, and yet eight months later, we have uh, not one person resettled under that deal. I, I heard Bridget Arthur speaking during the week, um, who's a Bridgetine nun, who's been to these um, detention centres. And she said when she talks to them on Manus, she said they're not really complaining about the food or the living conditions. They're complaining or what, what's, what's traumatising them is they don't know what their future is going yep. to be. No one tells them. Are they there for life? Are they there for three more months? Just not knowing is the most uh, – it's almost like torture. 
Yep. Is that? I mean, is that something you experience in the men you've spoken yeah, it's to? The, it's the crushing nature of of not knowing what's going to happen to you. So I've spoken to uh, people seeking asylum who happen to be detained uh, by the government policy at the time in Australian prisons and had spent time in detention centres, in immigration detention centres, in Australian prisons, even though they obviously weren't weren't um, accused of any crime and, and and weren't convicted of any crime. Um, they said that. They preferred being in prisons because at least in a prison you knew what people knew when they were getting out. Mm. They had a date that they could work towards. They could count down the days and it gave them some kind of hope of a future. Whereas in immigration detention, whether you're on Nauru, Christmas Island, Manus Island, this crushing uncertainty that's also built into our law. So if you're detained in Australia, if you arrived before July, before Kevin Rudd made this announcement, there are still people who have been detained for years and whether or not they're released is up to the um, personal discretion of one man, the immigration minister. Um, what if they don't have a passport? Because a lot of them have destroyed passports or lost passports, so they're stateless. So you really can't send them anywhere, even if you they agreed to do it. So, yeah, I mean, there's a few different issues there. Mm. For, for people who are stateless, like Rohingya, who are persecuted in Myanmar, they, they, can't, be, they can't be a return. Murdered so, in Thailand. We just uh, saw the murder trial this week of a Thai general involved in murdering Rohingya in the forests in Thailand. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, Same. it's well publicised, the, the persecution of that, that particular group. And, uh, you know, we saw those horrible scenes where they were being moved around by, um, you know, shunted from country to country and no one taking responsibility. And, and that's a consequence of, of Australia's lack of leadership on the world stage. This is a global problem and we need global cooperation, yet Australia's pushing the problem back on countries which can least afford to deal with it. Hugh Kretzer is our guest on Rich and Cures tonight. He's the Executive Director of the Human Rights Law Centre with Bill O'Shea, Steve Allen and myself, Lindy Burns. I just want to read a few texts. One that says, I'm ashamed of our government. What can ordinary people do? We might come back to that in a moment. That's from Shirley. Another that says, it could be that the government aren't listening to the people. This reminds me of the Holocaust. It seems that we haven't learnt the lessons that that event taught us we need to bring them here and try and integrate them into our system. That's from Susie. Uh, I'm ashamed to be an Australian, says another. Boundless place to share, apparently not. Uh, but surely, Hugh, the politicians see all of this as well. Why do they do nothing? And Steve says, the standard you walk past is the standard that you accept. Uh, a quote from a military man who wasn't Jim Molan, um, but um, it, it's, an, it's, an interesting, it's an interesting quote from Steve. I want to come back to why you think, and, and the, as the text mentions, it's not as if the politicians don't know this. They know it probably better than us. Well, certainly a, a small number of them. So why are they prepared for that to still go on? I, I mean, I know the immigration minister said, yeah, we, we want to close. This is going to close. Um, but that's not happening. It's a very slow process. Why are they prepared to accept it? And the only thing I can think of is that there is polling that's been done that shows that, unlike the text we've had tonight, that a majority of the country, of the population of this country, don't want them here. Yeah, uh, just on the closing Manus 
by the way, just so people are under no illusion, that, that there is no sustainable plan to close Manus. So uh, they, they've said that it'll close on the 31, 31st of October. All the com- companies who are involved in servicing those detention centres have announced their exit from it under pressure to say, how can you be involved in a business that profits from the abuse of humans? Um, and the, the only possible plan they have is to get rid of the centre and try and push push these people into the um, PNG community, which has been shown to be absolutely uh, no, no solution whatsoever, completely unsustainable on a country that can least afford to support them. So um, uh, we hold great fears for what will happen for these men. The men um, are desperately worried about it. In terms of the, um, the, the politics on this, um, it depends what question you ask the Australian people. If you ask the Australian people, do you want to see a baby born here return to um, harm on Nauru or Manus Island? The answer is no. And when you actually ask people, um, uh, should we provide safety to people who are fleeing from persecution? People say, of course we should. Um, if you ask people, are you comfortable with the secrecy that surrounds the indefinite detention of people on the high seas? One of the cases that we run, people will say, no, of course we're not. Um, uh, it, but what, one of the problems has been um, the lack of um, the prosecution of alternatives. And so um, what we're seeing from politics is that we, we won't be let out of this by politicians from either of the major parties saying we're, we're here to change the policy and we're going to lead the community. What we need to see is the community leading politics on this and the community saying um, enough is enough. And finally, you're seeing with the Let Them Stay movement, with the, um, with the announcement of the US deal was an acceptance by politics that Nauru and Manus are unsustainable. And that wasn't possible 12 months ago. How do we line up with what's going on with boats in the Mediterranean? How many boats have come across the Mediterranean into Greece, Turkey, Italy, Compared to Australia, how many refugees? The the numbers, I think on the, uh, I think it was 2013 was the number where we had the the greatest number of people arriving by boat, which was about 20,000 in Australia. Australia. That same year, about 400,000 people um, fled Syria to Turkey. And so the the, the countries that um, are are, um, shouldering the responsibility of looking after people fleeing conflict are those ones that um, can least afford it. So it's like Turkey, Jordan, uh, Lebanon, um, Kenya, Pakistan, Iran, um, uh, to a lesser extent, um, countries like Indonesia, Malaysia, India, and then uh, obviously Europe, countries like Germany, um, Italy, doing far better than Australia. Are we any closer on international agreements about how this could be handled consistently across the globe? Um, well, we have a great international agreement, which is called the Refugees Convention, which after the, the horrors of World War II, where the international community said, we must provide safety to people who are fleeing persecution, and we are never going to let that happen again, where um, we're, we're turning boats away of Jewish people who are fleeing the Holocaust and, and as, sorry, fleeing Nazi Germany and returning them to Europe where they, they're subsequently exposed to the Holocaust. So um, that's where the international community got together with a very simple notion to say we must cooperate to provide safety for people fleeing persecution and that's that simple notion that Australia is walking away from and undermining at the international level. I was in Jordan a month ago and Jordan has 2 million people and it has 1 million refugees from Syria and Iraq and our guide said to us of course we take them, we have to take them because if we don't they'll be killed 
if I go back to Syria and Iraq, they'll be killed. Of course, we take them. It's a different approach, isn't it? There's a text actually that's very pertinent to that conversation that said that a Czech lady that I used to work with once said that the problem with Australians is that we are too lazy and comfortable to have any kind of a revolution and uh, to respond to these kind of circumstances. Um, there's food for thought there. Always food for thought when you come in, Hugh. Um, thank you very much indeed. So the, the report that you were referring to with these uh, about these seven men, when does it come out? Uh, it, it's out last week. It's on our website, hrlc.org.au. It's a short report. I encourage people to read it. It just tells the human stories of men who are suffering and who are Australia's responsibility. And the faces. You've got to look at the faces. Faces as well, yeah. Mm. HRLC stands for Human Rights Law Centre and our special guest tonight has been the Executive Director of that centre. His name is Hugh de Kretzer. Um, there's also, this is, I, I want to read this text just to sort of wrap this conversation up. There have been so many lies told about these poor people that some Australians believe that they have jumped the queues and they've arrived illegally. It's just inhumane to me to treat them this way. Bring them, please. Please bring them here, says Kim from Kilsyth, just wrapping up the conversations that we've had via text tonight. My name is Lindy Burns and his name is Steve Allen. Bill O'Shea has been with us as well, Melbourne lawyer and our special guest, Hugh de Kretzer for tonight's Ritz and Cures.